So before we jump into things this morning, I want to give you a bit of an update on a couple things. Uh, two weeks ago, on the afternoon of Sunday, September 20th, there was a, an important congregational meeting, and in case you were not a part of that meeting, one of the uh, important items on the agenda was council's decision at that time to eliminate the Connections pastor position at ECC. They made this decision based on the past and projected budget realities and the part of their council responsibilities to steward over the finances of ECC. During the meeting, a motion was made, seconded, and passed to reverse that decision. So in addition, uh, in order to meet the operating needs created by that decision, a decision, another motion was made and passed to give council authority to tap into uh, some special funds, our reserves, and our strategic ministry fund to fund operating shortfalls. The reality is that doing so means that until our stewardship practices and our weekly offerings are able to meet the operating needs of the budget, the projections based on recent trends show we're going to experience an average shortfall of approximately $10,000 a month, which we'll, draw, which we'll then draw from that strategic ministry fund. The goal, of course, is to get to the place that we do not need to draw on that fund, but can meet those needs through our offerings and uh, uh, to the operating budget and uh, possible other expense adjustments to, uh, adjustments to the budget in the future. We've uh, just finished the month of September, and as the pattern has suggested, the giving was approximately $10,000 short of the need, and we will meet that shortage from our reserves. So each month, what we've decided to do as staff is to uh, offer up a brief stewardship moment like this one uh, to keep you informed and also to do some uh, mini shots of teaching on, on what stewardship is all about. During the, the pandemic, initially we saw some real rallying by many of you to meet the financial need, and I, I want to thank you for that. As the pandemic wore on, however, uh, giving has trailed off. So here's my challenge, my encouragement to you and to me as well. If you have given in the past, but have trailed off in your giving, we need you to answer this call to stewardship and to begin to give again uh, more regularly. If you have given in the past, but have never done so with any intentionality or planning, on a monthly or weekly basis, we encourage you to do so. Kim and I have our giving automatically withdrawn on a regular basis so that we do not fall behind. I encourage you to consider online giving as an option, especially if you're not meeting with us uh, in person in this room, if you're worshiping with us online. You go to ecclife.net and you tap on the um, giving tab at the top of the page. If you do worship with us in person, there's an offering box in the lobby as you enter and leave the sanctuary. Otherwise, you can do what many of you are already doing. You mail the check-in or you come by the office during the week and drop it off. If you have been given, given uh, regularly and you've remained faithful, first of all, thank you for your faithfulness in that. And second, I ask you to pray along with Kim and me um, and ask God if there's some increase that he would have us to give each month. To be clear, Kim and I learned to tithe very early on in our marriage, and we've never regretted that. We've never uh, needed to, to go back on that. Uh, and at times, we've also prayed and sensed that God wanted us to go above the tithe, and we've also never regretted those decisions either. So I invite you, whether you tithe currently or not, I invite you to prayerfully consider increasing what you give by half a percent, by a percent, however God leads you, but especially if you do not currently give uh, the tithe, the 10% of your income that is traditionally understood by Scripture. If you consider ECC your home and you have never given, then I invite you to ask God to help you step out in faith to be a part of the solution and to contribute at this time. Simply start somewhere, 1%, 5%, wherever you feel you can begin. And then last, we are aware that for some of us, this pandemic has caused financial hardship 
and we in no way want these words or these moments to cause any guilt or condemnation or judgment. If you're not able to give it this time, the grace of God is more than sufficient for you and more than sufficient for us. We just ask that you start with prayer and an openness and continue to pray for these things with us. Thanks for listening to that. So, a few years ago, I was, a part, I was invited to be a part of a book study here in Lafayette with several pastors in the area. And uh, <clears throat> we met every other week. It was a fairly homogenous group, all um, white, mostly evangelical uh, pastors. Eventually, several of those people moved to other cities or other calls somewhere, and I became the leader of the group because I was now the senior member of the group. And uh, then we began to change things. And one of the things I'm proudest about is, uh, is, is how it became more diverse. Not as diverse as I would like it to be, but it was more diverse than it was, especially theologically. I was proudest that uh, under my leadership, and very intentionally, we, uh, before the group had been all men, and now we had added two women to the group, two women pastors. And whereas before it had been uh, originally people from mostly an evangelical group under uh, my leadership, we also uh, moved it toward more diversity theologically. So at one point we had a Church of Christ minister, a Southern Baptist youth pastor, two to three covenant pastors, two to three reformed pastors, a Presbyterian pastor, and two Episcopalian priests. It was like a joke, all of us getting together in the room. And uh, I'm very proud of that. We remain friends to this day even though that group is not actually meeting anymore. Our conversations, our discussions ran the gamut of theological diversity, as did our, our friendships. We were diverse, and yet we got along, and our diversity and any tensions that, we might have come, that might have come with it was a good thing. Our diversity and any tensions that might have come with it was a good thing. We loved each other. We supported and prayed for each other. We listened to each other, even when we disagreed on politics or theology or whatever. We loved each other, we supported each other. And I would suggest to you that this is what Jesus has always had in mind. And whether or not it's exactly what Jesus had in mind, if you read your New Testament, you see that is the nature of the New Testament church. They were a very diverse group. And sometimes there was tension, and sometimes there was even division. It's the reason the Apostle Paul had to say things like, bear one another's burdens. Or, remember, you're all different, but you're all part of one body. Or in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This week in our series, we're drawing from chapter 3 of Dan White Jr.'s book, Love Over Fear. And we're going to take a look, as you heard in the scripture reading, at the people Jesus drew to himself as his initial group of followers, the twelve, as they are sometimes referred to, the disciples. What was Jesus up to, and how do his choices and his wisdom in that situation, how can those things inform and speak to the challenges that we face in our current cultural moment? Our good news statement for the entirety of this series, once again, is while we were God's enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. While you were God's enemy, God loved you and reconciled you to himself through Jesus Christ. After an intense time of ministry early in Mark 3, we read this in in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. 
The picture here of Jesus going up on a mountain is meant, we think, to remind us of the book of Exodus, chapters 18 and 19, when God calls Moses up on the mountain, and there on the mountain God instructs Moses and begins to give him instructions on how to constitute the people of Israel who will now become the people of God, the people of Yahweh. Jesus goes up on a mountain, he brings those with him whom he wanted to bring, and they came to him. And Jesus, in doing this, is basically reimagining or reforming the people of Israel through his disciples. The plan that God began at the beginning of our Bibles continues. Then in verses 14 and 15, he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Here's another clue that Jesus is uh, reforming, reshaping, reimagining the people of Israel as God's people on earth. He appoints 12 of them. Why 12? We think 12 because they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus reboots Israel. And like Israel before them, these 12 disciples will represent God to the nations. They will be sent out to to preach the good news and to cast out demons. But we dare not skip over one little phrase. Jesus appoints the twelve, not only so that they will preach the good news and drive out demons, but that they might be with him. That they might be with him. We, in the West, in my experience at least, have a love affair with the mind when it comes to making disciples. We want to pour facts into the heads of people who've come to faith We want them to memorize verses. We want them to do fill-in-the-blank Bible studies. And to be sure, there are things we need to know and learn cognitively. I'm not disagreeing with that. There is an unlearning of one way of life and a relearning of a new way of life. But we also need to learn to be with Jesus. To be with Jesus. And this is more than reading and memorizing and answering quizzes and questions. True life change happens when we get to know Jesus, when we spend time being with Jesus in His Word, in prayer, in fellowship with Him, in the community of believers. True life change, happen, uh, life change happens when we learn what it means to be with Jesus. We get to know Jesus. Because as Kristen so beautifully showed us last week, when we get to know Jesus, we get to know the true nature of God. When we get to know Jesus, we get to know the true nature of God. For Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. Jesus brings God the Father into sharp, 4K, ultra-high definition focus. Jesus is the Blu-ray edition, not that old VHS you have stuck in your cabinet somewhere. We see God clearly, most clearly, in Jesus. We who seek to become a community of people who know God, follow Jesus, and pursue God's purposes in the world will only be equipped to do these things if we learn to be with Jesus, to live our lives daily in fellowship with Jesus, not just up here, but throughout our whole lives, to be present to Jesus to be transformed by Jesus, if we can tap into that ECC touchstone of transformation. I want to take a page from Kristen's playbook this week. We're going to play a game. You've probably heard that after a while, pets start to look like their owners, their masters. If that's the case, which of the following dogs belongs to this man? I think this is the easiest one I'm going to... No, it's not. There's another easier one. 
This is, it's the bottom left, right? That's clear. Give me the next one, please. Which one? This is a little harder. Which one is it? Who, who says top left? Who says bottom right? There you go. It's the bottom right. And what about this one? <laughs> that one's probably just a joke, but you get the idea. Sometimes pets can look an awful lot like their owners, right? It's almost uncanny. Like I said, the last one's probably not real. This is, of course, a somewhat silly illustration of a discipleship truth. Just as dogs sometimes look like their masters, so you and I are called to be more and more like our master, Jesus. Disciples do need to learn about Jesus, absolutely, but even more so, disciples need and get the honor of becoming like Jesus. Becoming like Jesus. Christiform people living together in a Christiform and always Christiforming community. Discipleship also is not merely an individual endeavor. Again, something we in the West tend to think about. It's an individualist society. But discipleship is not only an individual endeavor, it is also about community. It's an endeavor we pursue best in community with other followers of Jesus. And as we're going to see, that community apparently functions best when we are thrown together with people that are different from who we are. Which takes us now to those whom Jesus called to be with him. Verse 16, These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Again, Jesus chose 12 disciples to call to mind for us the tribes of Israel, to reboot Israel, to reboot her mission. But there are many other questions here. Who are these people? Where do they come from? Why does Jesus give some of them new names or nicknames, and why are there no women among these disciples? Who are these people? Simon Peter is a fisherman, as are James and John. We probably know the most about these three. They were considered to be sort of Jesus' inner circle of leadership. They, we often see them spending time alone with Jesus because he's probably preparing them for the time he will leave, and they will have to take on a leadership role. They were, they were good, upstanding, hardworking Jewish men, but they weren't perfect. Simon is given the new name, Peter, a name that means rock. And from what we know of Peter, he very often does not look like a rock. He wavers on the night of Jesus' betrayal and pretends he doesn't even know him. It's not very rock-like. He lacked the faith to walk on water very far. Not very rock-like, except that he sank. And then later in the New Testament, Peter withdraws from Gentiles out of peer pressure when he knows it's not the right thing to do. But Jesus gives him the name Rock. To James and John, he gave the nickname Sons of Thunder. We don't know exactly what this means, but we can guess. It probably means they were loud and, and noisy and argumentative, maybe not always that easy to get along with, say like William Shatner in the 1960s. Or Ellen DeGeneres today, I hear. <laughs> they apparently had a bit of a temper, too. In, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 54, 
After a Samaritan village wants nothing to do with Jesus, they say to Jesus, Lord, the sons of thunder say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire and destroy them? Uh, Boys, let's not do that. In fact, I I think that's a bit offensive. As I said, these are all hardworking Jewish men who would have earned a living and paid taxes, which brings us to Matthew sometimes called Levi, we think. We're not exactly sure how all this works, but we think those, those two people are the same, those two names are the same person, who was a tax collector. Tax collectors felt no love from hardworking Jewish men. Tax collectors supported the system, the Roman system, and were allowed to collect more tax than was owed so that they could better line their own pur- purses. Picture, if you will, these hard-working Jewish men in the weekly staff meeting that Jesus holds, and they meet eyes across the room with the tax collector. Maybe he even cheated them. We don't know. He supports the very system, the, the Roman system, the, the, the occupying armies. He supports them. He keeps them in business. At the very least, there had to be some, at times, some awkward moments in the staff meeting and in other places. Bartholomew isn't even actually a name. We've made it into a name now, but it wasn't originally. In context, it's merely, it merely means son of Thalmai. He's just identifying who he sees the, who he's the son of. Maybe they knew who that was. Now, keeping tallies, and we're not going to look at every name, but keeping tallies, so far we have three hardworking fishermen, two-thirds of which can be a bit cantankerous and loud, who might have paid taxes to Matthew or Levi or somebody like him, who probably cheated them and others like them. And we have a guy whose personality may have been so underwhelming that Mark can't remember his name. Oh yes, we have Peter, James, John, Matthew, and uh, what's his name? And we haven't even gotten to the political challenges yet. Simon the Zealot, the zealous one, may have been a part of a revolutionary party who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. Even Judas's name, and this may be new to, for most of us, Judas's name may not be Judas Iscariot. The Iscariot may actually be a word uh, that's being translated from the Hebrew, Sakari, which means dagger, which is an even, if so, he was a part of an even more radical revolutionary group, a group that would be given over to violence if necessary. And truthfully, since he is the one who eventually will betray Jesus, That could be true. What Jesus has gathered together is a very diverse group of people, some would say dangerously diverse. When you and I want to start a movement, what do we do? We look, we gather people who are like us. We like to be with people who are like us. We want to change society, we get together with people who are like us. People of like mind, like passions, maybe even similar personalities. But Jesus doesn't do that. He does something different. He picks people who might not get along, let alone in another context, might not let one another live. He calls them and he forms that group of people into a community. A community that was potentially at times at least full of tension, differing opinions, ways of getting things done, and different visions of the future. Elsewhere in Dan White's book, he asks perhaps just for giggles, if maybe when Jesus sent out the, the disciples two by two, if he paired up Levi the tax collector with Simon the zealot, you two go door to door. This will be fun. In the 2012 film, 
by Steven Spielberg, Lincoln. It was based on Doris Kern Goodwin, Kearns Goodwin's book, uh, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. The, the book and the film try to flesh out uh, President Lincoln's strategy of deliberately uh, appointing people to his cabinet who ran against him, who opposed him, and who opposed one another as a way to, bring, uh, to reconcile conflicting personalities and conflicting ideas and political factions for the good of the nation. Is it too much to suggest that Jesus himself, in a sense, built just such a team with his disciples, a team of rivals? In Andy Stanley's advice to pastors and leaders, <clears throat> he charges us that when we face challenges in our churches or in our, our organizations, that we should look at those challenges and we should ask the question, is this a problem to be solved or is it a tension to be managed? Is this a problem to be solved or is it a tension to be managed? Clearly, Jesus seems to think that he is called to manage the tension in the group rather than kick everyone out who isn't just like he is comes from the exact background he does. Jesus chooses to manage the tension, or perhaps we could say Jesus chooses to steward over the tension that was in, already present in society, and he raises up people from within that society and from within those tensions, and these people become the people of God. But if this is so representative, why aren't there any women in this group? It certainly isn't because Jesus didn't value women or didn't think they were capable of leading. We, we see that happen more and more as our New Testament unfolds, especially after the resurrection and the com- coming of the Holy Spirit. However, what we have to understand theologically is that when Jesus is incarnated into our world, by definition, he is incarnated, he is enfleshed into a culture, into a demographic as well. And that culture, that demographic, was decidedly male-centered and patriarchal. Women didn't have much, if any, clout in that day and age. Throughout the pages of Scripture, God is always working in and through a particular people in a particular time at a particular culture. Then from within that culture, God begins to bring about change. From within the culture, God begins to bring about change. So from within a culture, for example, that, that... that thought absolutely nothing early on of the idea that the gods wanted human sacrifice, even child sacrifice. That's what everybody thought the gods wanted way back in the beginning of this book. In that, God calls on Abram in Genesis 22 and tells him to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. But he does it not because he's, I don't think he's just testing Abram. I think he's trying to teach Abram something. Your Bible will say the testing of Abram. I think there's more going on here. A little heading. He's trying to teach Abram, I know you think that's what I'm like, but I, Yahweh, am not like that. I do not ask you to sacrifice your children. In fact, later in Scripture, Jeremiah 32, 35, check it out, God says clearly that the thought of human sacrifice, quote, never entered my mind. And so from within a patriarchal culture, Jesus does something countercultural in regards to the roles of women. There's a t-shirt that Kim and I gave Evelyn Myers proclaims, Jesus protected women, empowered women, honored women publicly, released the voice of women, confided in women, was funded by women, celebrated women by name. 
learned from women, respected women, and spoke of women as examples to follow. In addition, I would add, Jesus made his first resurrection appearances to women. From within a patriarchal culture, Jesus began to move the culture in a new kingdom direction. And were Jesus to come today again, I am convinced that he would be compelled to include women in the sequel. For the culture in which Jesus incarnated himself, the group of people he chose as his first followers was very diverse. And as we all know, dangerous is so when it comes to one particular disciple, Judas, who betrayed him. Talk about love over fear. Once again, from later in the book, Love Over Fear, Research by the Barna Group has found that Christians, quote, are even more likely not to have friends who are different than them, from them, especially when it comes to religious beliefs. That is, 91% of Christians are more likely to have friends whose religious beliefs are, quote, mostly similar to theirs. 88% are more likely to have friends who are the same ethnicity. And 86% of Christians in the United States are more likely to have friends who hold the same political views. It appears that we, you and I, often run from the very diversity Jesus ordains. We run from the very diversity Jesus ordains. The space Jesus makes and keeps and holds is different from the way many of us live our lives today. From all the people Jesus could have picked, it appears he intentionally chose a group of followers who were very different from one another in key ways, even at times diametrically opposed foes. Jesus apparently even chose the one who would later betray him. And to those on the outside watching this, that was an ultimate, the ultimate failure in leadership. You chose the one who would betray you, but not from a kingdom perspective. From a kingdom perspective... It's part of the risk you take. It's part of the risk you take. Unity amid diversity is apparently the nature of God's kingdom vision. Unity amid diversity is apparently the very nature of God's kingdom vision. So, if while we were God's enemies, he loved us and reconciled, himself to, uh, reconciled us to himself and in and through Jesus Christ, if God in that same Christ called to himself as his first followers, a team of rivals, a diverse group of people who in any other context would have have a lot of trouble getting along, how are we to respond to that good news? I'm going to give you one thing to do in response to that good news. One thing. I want you to name an enemy in your own heart, and I want it to be a fellow follower of Christ. You may say, I don't have enemies. Yeah, you do. Someone who hurt you? Someone with whom you vehemently disagree on something? Maybe it's politics? Someone whose views or personality or something deeply troubles you? Just name them as an enemy in the way that you think about them, and I want you to choose to pray for that person every single day for the next week. But if you really want to move the needle on this, pray for this person or persons, if you have a couple, every single day right through the end of the year. And you can only pray good things for them, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) You have to pray God will bless them. You have to pray God will keep them safe. 
You have to pray God will reveal himself and his love to them, that he will provide for them and their families, and see what will happen. See what will happen in your heart, at least, if not in the relationship. It may even be someone in this room. Find that person, pray for them every day, at least for the next week, but I double dare you to go longer. Pray only good things for them. Would you pray with me now as we close and prepare our hearts for communion? Good and gracious God, we thank you for the example of Jesus, the one who called to himself a group of people who were not only different from him, but also different, Lord God, from one another in some very important and challenging ways. And we come to you as your people in this place and time. And we acknowledge that we, too, have trouble getting along with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we choose fear over love. I pray, God, that you would help us now to re-engage the truth of your word, the truth of your practices, the kingdom reality that we are called to love and serve one another, and we are called to work together with one another, even when we don't always completely agree. Help us, Lord God, to be honest about these things, to pray, the, pray about them, and to turn these things over to you over and over again for your purposes, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.